Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. But what is goodness? How are we to understand it? We have a problem because this word is one of those super flexible words. It can mean so many different things. A good meal, we say, by which we mean that it is a tasty, nutritious and satisfying meal. A good day, we say, by which we mean it is a fruitful, rewarding, successful day. A good dog, we say, by which we mean a non-aggressive, toilet-trained, command-responsive dog. Or at least I hope we do. A good child? Well, that's probably a child that eats well, sleeps well, and smiles often. Or a good chap. We say he's a good chap. By which we mean he's gentlemanly, he's got good manners, he's trustworthy, he can be relied on, he's generous, good to be around, you know. And all of these uses are perfectly acceptable uses in the English language of the word good. But the problem is that because there are so many uses and because it is such a, a, a big word, such a flexible word, When we speak of the goodness of God, it becomes drained of all its meaning. We don't quite know what that means. It's almost as though God's goodness is his niceness. And nice is a very, very, very watery word indeed. We'd be better off not using it at all. I confess that until I had set myself to prepare this sermon, I did not really clearly understand what I meant when I said God is good. Not that I was wrong, but that it was inadequate. Well, may the Lord help us today, I suppose, as the shepherd, so the sheep. If I haven't properly understood this word, it's probable you, probably true you haven't too. Well, may the Lord help us today. Let's think firstly about the testimony to goodness in Scripture. The testimony to goodness in Scripture. The Bible testifies again and again and again, God is good. And we find this in the Psalms, as we've said, over and above any other book of the Bible. The Psalms repeatedly tell us that God is good. So Psalm 100 verse 5, the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. So there in that verse, goodness brings us immediately into mercy or covenant love, steadfast love, truthfulness and faithfulness. Then Psalm 106 and verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And what comes after the he is good? For his mercy endures forever. Again, goodness is connected with his steadfast love and his faithfulness and his pity and his kindness towards 
his covenant people. Psalm 107, as we've read, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And what follows on immediately after? For his mercy endures forever. Mercy particularly towards the redeemed, whom he has redeemed from the hands of their enemies. This is God's pity, compassion and kindness to his people. Psalm 136 and verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And if you go through that psalm, you'll find that the refrain is repeated again and again. For his mercy endures forever. 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 You cannot miss the message. For his mercy endures forever. For his mercy endures forever. That is what it means for God to be good. He is merciful. He is kind. He is compassionate. And then Psalm 145 and verse 9. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. The goodness of God is the tender mercy of God. And it is over all his works. God is good full of mercy, full of compassion, full of covenant love, full of pity, full of kindness, loving kindness. That's a great word that we use, isn't it, of God. In Mark 10, a man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Verse 17, and Jesus replies, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. God alone is good. God is goodness itself. The very definition of goodness is God. So when we think of goodness, we're not to imagine of some external form or standard of good. A bit like Plato, you know, there is the form of good. And God conforms to that. God is good. God is like this thing that is external to himself. God fills the ideal of goodness perfectly. That is not how it works. It is the other way around. God himself is the essence of goodness. He defines what goodness is. God and God alone determines what is good. And this essential of goodness of God is manifested, as we've seen from Psalm 145, in all his works. In everything that he does, God manifests goodness. Indeed, all that he does must be a manifestation of goodness, since it is essential to his very being. If you go back to Genesis 1, God is creating the world. He speaks, let there be light. And there was light. And what does God say about the light when he's made the light? He says... That he, he saw that it was good, verse 4, Genesis 1. God saw the light, that it was good. And then what did he say about the dry land when he made the dry land? Verse 10, God saw that it was good. And what did he say when he, he saw the heavens and the earth and the, and the moon and the sun and the stars? He said that was good too. And what did he say when he saw the sea creatures and the birds flying in the firmament of the heavens? He said that was good too. And what did he say when he made all the land animals and they're all 
creeping over the whole earth. He saw verse 25 of Genesis 1, that it was good. And, and what did he say when he stepped back from all his creation? And he saw all that he had made. This is what God said. He said, indeed, it is very good. Genesis 1, 31. You see, all creation is a display, a manifestation of the goodness of God. And that is why, as we read in Psalm 145, he is good to all. Did you see that? To all. Yes, there is a special sense in which his goodness is manifested to his people, to his covenant people, and we'll look at that. But there is a goodness of God. Since he is inherently good, since he is essentially good, this goodness is over, Psalm 145, verse 9, all his works. And so all his works praise the name of the goodness of God. What this means is that God doesn't just do good things. Oh, I'll do a bit of good here and I'll do a bit of good there. You know, God isn't like a pixie who flies around with goodness dust and sprinkles a bit of goodness here and sprinkles a bit of goodness there. And you kind of think, oh, if I just get myself in line, I'll get a bit of goodness from God. All that God does is good. All that he does is good. He cannot fail to do good. Goodness is what he is. Because God does not choose to be good. He is essentially good. He can no sooner fail to do good than he can change or suffer or be dependent or fall to pieces or be confined or any of the other many things that we've already said God cannot do and God cannot be because he is essentially these things. The psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 68 puts it this way. You are good and do good that's it you are good and so you do good to use that double negative we've got accustomed to and we've used quite a lot he cannot not do good he cannot fail to do good goodness just flows out of his being his goodness 1 timothy 4 4 is over all his works and is manifested in all his creation all that is in God is good. All goodness is found in God. There is no goodness apart from God. All goodness is defined by God, finds its origin in God, flows out from God, derives from God, depends on God, exists only because God is. This means that all creation is like a theater stage. Think of that. The whole universe is like a, it's like a set that some brilliant theater stage artist has prepared. And the title of the play is The Goodness of God. And on this great stage, which is the universe, the goodness of God is played out before us. And so what are we as creatures to do? Listen again to the psalmist in Psalm 34, verse 8, where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You as a creature are invited by a good God to come and taste of his goodness. And when you do, every time you do, 
Every time you come to God and taste of him, you will ruminate it and marinate it around in your mouth like this. Probably the wrong words. I'm not very good with food. And you'll say, that is good. That is good. That is so good. Every taste from God is good. Every smell from God is good. Every sight of God is good. Every good touch is of God. Every good sound is from God. Every good that we experience is ours because God is and because he is good. And because he cannot but share that goodness with his creation since he's the essence of goodness. This is why the Bible finds God in creation again and again and again. Not that God is confined by his creation or defined by or limited by his creation in any way, as we've already said. But that his goodness is manifested in and displayed through his creation to his creatures and especially to his moral creatures, to us, to human beings who are able to communicate with God in his goodness. We are able to share in the goodness of God. Yes, the animals and the trees, even the onions I planted out last night, if the Lord is good, which he is, will experience the goodness of God and they will grow and they will become big, fat, juicy onions, which will be chopped up and and be seriously tasty. But you know that the onion is not a moral thing. The onion cannot communicate with God in God's goodness, nor can the dog or the giraffe or the ape or whatever it may be in creation, but you can. You can communicate with God in his goodness. You can taste and really experience the goodness of God. And that is why we are called in the scripture to see God in everything. God is not everything. God is not the tree. The tree is not God. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is when you see the tree, God is communicating his goodness to you. That's what creation is there for. And so we see the goodness of the refreshment of a fountain is from God. Psalm 36 verse 9. The goodness of the satisfaction of bread is from God. John 6 51. The goodness of the homeliness of a dwelling place is from God, Psalm 90, verse 1. The goodness of the security of covering wings as a mother hen or a mother duck around the ducklings. This is of God, Psalm 91, verse 4. The goodness of the stability of a mighty rock as we see it being bashed out by the waves and we say, see that rock? That is like my God, because my God is a rock to me. Psalm 62, verse 7. The goodness of the tender care of a, of a shepherd for the sheep is of God. Psalm 23, verse 1. The goodness of the defense of a shield against the arrows of the enemy is of God, because he is our shield. Genesis 15, verse 1. The goodness of the love of a devoted husband who provides and cares and loves is of God, Hosea 2.19. And we 
could go on and on and on and on with this list. Because all of these good things come from God and all of this goodness is of God and all of this goodness speaks of God because God is good. Every good thing, says James in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing and every perfect thing comes down from above. He is transcendent. Yes, he is not a part of his creation. We're not pantheists. But he communicates with us through his creation. And he comes down to us and he accommodates himself to us. And in everything God is saying to you, I am good, I am good, I am good. All that I am is good. And I desire to communicate my goodness to you. You see, the God of the scriptures is not like the gods of men who as A.W. Tozer explains are, quotes, tricky, sulky, nasty and deceitful. Those are the gods of men. And when your God is tricky, sulky, nasty and deceitful, what does it make you? It makes you tricky, sulky, nasty and deceitful as you try to manipulate him into being what you want him to be. And so you have this kind of communication of non-goodness, communication in wickedness and evil which is what we see in the world around us all the time. Not so with our God, because our God is a good God. Through and through, he is good. Which brings us to a definition of goodness now. In our theology, our second point is our definition of goodness. We can make a definition now. What is it? How do we bring these scriptures together? Well, I'm going to quote from a few of our favorite theologians that we've heard from many times. This is goodness. This is, this is wonderful. Listen. Charnock says, goodness is the bounty of God. His inclination to deal well and bountifully with his creatures. Abrakel says, goodness is the very opposite of harshness, cruelty, gruffness, severity, mercilessness. It is the loveliness benign character, sweetness, friendliness, and generosity of God. Packer says, goodness is cosmic generosity. Ooh that's, ooh, that's good, isn't it? Cosmic generosity. We're, we're into cosmic rebellion. And God responds with cosmic generosity. What a God. Louis Burkhoff says that perfection of God, this is goodness, which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with his creatures. God is the summum bonum, the highest good for all his creatures. Tozer says the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent and full of good toward men. He is tender hearted and quick of sympathy. And his unfailing attitude towards all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. The penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, he is considerate. To the weak, he is gentle. And to the stranger, he is hospitable. And what all these definitions have in common is this emphasis upon the disposition of God towards his creatures. What is God's disposition towards his creatures? As God looks down from his transcendent glory upon his creatures and sees us in all our creatureliness, in all our weakness, in all our dependence, and tragically 
in all our sin and in all the consequences of our sin, what is his disposition towards us? Well, we know now, don't we? Because we know what it means when we say that God is good. It means that God is disposed to be benevolent, bountiful, generous, kind, cordial, merciful, forgiving, and hospitable towards his creatures. What a thing. And all of this is an issue of morality, which is why the goodness of God is manifested in his holy law. Do you know, it upsets me. It upsets me so much that God's law in the Bible is treated as a bad thing. As though God's law is something we avoid. We don't want the law of God. We don't want the rules of God. We just want the grace of God. And as though the grace of God is fighting against the law of God. No, 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 no. The law of God is the goodness of God. Think about the Ten Commandments. What is he saying in the Ten Commandments? He's saying, worship me alone. Why? Because... You want goodness in your life? You're only going to get it from me. You worship the idols, those nasty, tricksy, deceitful, wicked, evil things that don't even exist. They're just a reflection of your own nasty, evil, tricksy heart. You you won't get any good there. Come to me. Why is God so concerned that we should worship him alone? It is because he desires to do us good. And throw through the Ten Commandments, it's all about goodness. Why doesn't he want us to murder? Why does he want us to be faithful to our wives? Why does he want us to speak the truth? Why does he want us not to cover what won't satisfy? It's because he's good. The law of God is all good. It's all for our good. Because God is good. Doesn't this come out in Exodus 34 after the terrible experience of the First, uh, sent up Sinai and Moses gets the two tablets of stone and God writes on them with his finger and Moses comes down and they're worshipping the golden calf and Moses smashes them and so on. But what happens? What happens? Well, we're not surprised, are we? Because we know that God is good. So God says, come up again a second time and I will do it again for you, Moses. And he writes with his finger a second time, Exodus 34, he cuts the two tablets of stones like the first ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud. You see, this is God's accommodation. This is God's condescension. This is God coming down again to man. And he descends and he stands with Moses and proclaims his name. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Merciful and gracious. There it is again. What is the first thing God wants to say to Moses about himself? I am merciful and I am gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and so on. Not that he compromises with sin, as you see later in the passage. But he is good. God is good. Goodness is that moral perfection of God. This is my own definition. Goodness is that moral perfection of God that leads him to manifest covenant kindness, faithfulness and benevolence towards his creatures without ever compromising his holiness or his purity. Goodness is that moral perfection of God. 
that leads him to manifest covenant, kindness, faithfulness, and benevolence towards his creatures without ever compromising his holiness or his purity. It is noticeable, isn't it, how often his goodness is at the heart of his covenant love and how goodness and steadfast love or mercy are so often connected in the scriptures. We've seen it many times, but just let me give you just one more from Isaiah 63. Verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. God could hardly use more effusive language to display his benevolence and his warmth out of the goodness of his heart. Stephen Charnock, perhaps above all others, is the theologian of the goodness of God. He calls the goodness of God the captain attribute. The captain attribute. And all the other good things, as we shall see in coming weeks, that are communicated to us come because God is good. It is his goodness, which is his communion with us. It is his goodness that produces grace and mercy and patience. And those are our next few studies, by the way. But let me read Charnock to you. When goodness confers happiness without merit, it is grace. When it bestows happiness against merit, it is mercy. When he bears with provoking rebels, it is long-suffering. When he performs his promise, it is truth. When it meets with a person to whom it is not obliged, it is grace. When he meets with a person in the world to which he has obliged himself by promise, it is truth. When it commiserates a distressed person, it is pity. When it supplies an indigent person, it is bounty. When it succors an innocent person, it is righteousness. When it pardons a, a penitent person, it is mercy. And all of this is summed up in one word. Goodness. The goodness of God. Didn't we see it in Psalm 107? Are men hungry? God comes and feeds them. Are men in danger? God comes and saves them. Are men suffering the consequences of sin? God comes and delivers them. Are men in any kind of trouble or distress and they cry out to the Lord? What does God say to them? What are you crying to me for? You brought it all on yourselves. You launched the cosmic rebellion. What do you expect from me? Cosmic generosity in return. Yes, God cannot not be generous toward the person who comes with empty hands and says, Lord God of goodness, fill me with your goodness. There is not one human being who has ever come to a good God empty and said, God, fill me with your goodness. And they've gone away empty. There is not one example. Not one, because God is good. And that is why God's goodness will win. I want us to think now about the victory of goodness in Christ. Because something has happened in God's world to threaten his goodness, hasn't it? Sin came into the world. 
Satan challenged the goodness of God. And if the disposition of God towards his creation, this benevolence, this bounty, this generousness, this this gentleness and so on is going to continue, then he's got to overcome this sin and this Satan. When you go back to Genesis 3, it's very evident, isn't it, that Satan challenges the goodness of God. First, he casts doubt upon God's goodness. Genesis 3, 1, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Why has God said that? Why is God withholding this tree from you? That doesn't sound very good. And then from doubt, it it moves to denial. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God isn't good, says Satan. God is withholding good from you. You've come to God. You've tasted of all these trees of the garden, but you haven't gone away and said the whole God is good, have you? Because God isn't good. And what you need to to do is to defy him. And that's the only way you're going to get good. And so Eve sees the tree and takes of the fruit and eats of it. And the moment she eats of it, spiritual death comes over her. A cold shiver runs through her. She rushes for cover. She hides in the trees. She covers herself with the leaves of the trees. She tries to escape from God, who is the source of all goodness. That's sin. When you sin, you cut yourself off. From the goodness of God. When you sin, you say, God is not good. I don't want God. I don't want his goodness. I want to find my goodness elsewhere. But there is no goodness outside of God. You won't find it anywhere else. It doesn't exist. So sin was born. And since the day that sin was born, the cordial benevolence and gentle hospitableness of God has been threatened. No more walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day now. Just banishment. Truly, Satan is a liar and a murderer and an opponent of goodness. Make no mistake, the opposite of goodness is not freedom and fullness, as Satan claimed to Eve. It is bondage and wickedness, which begins as moral evil and then produces hatefulness, miserliness, unkindness, bitterness, harshness, cruelty, severity, mercilessness, and selfishness, which is the opposite of the goodness of God. And that is Satan. And that is what hell is filled with. Malice and evil. But has this conquered God? Has it defeated the goodness of God? No. God's moral goodness is so essential, so foundational, so fundamental, so infinite. He has even defeated sin. The goodness of God, which flows out from the being of God, which is omnipotent and glorious and majestic, is brighter than all the wickedness of Satan. Though Satan has thrown at God and at his people and at his creation every bit of ammunition he has through every bit of artillery that he has. When the dust settles and the battle is over. What's happening on that stage that we've spoken about of creation now that sin has come in? It is that the goodness of God shines even more brightly now than it did before. 
because God's goodness is victorious over Satan's malice. Notice how the victory is announced in Genesis 3.15. Even before God speaks to Adam and Eve and, and puts the curse upon them, he already says in verse 15 to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And all you'll ever be able to do, Satan, is to nip at his heel like a Jack Russell. Nip, nip, nip. He's going to crush your head. Christ will crush the head of wickedness, of evil, of anti-goodness. He's going to do it. It was announced the very moment that sin came into the world. This is not an afterthought of God. This is not a plan B. This is God's plan working out. And the display of his goodness. And then what happens when Jesus comes to this earth? Goodness came to the earth. All the goodness of God in a person that we can relate to and connect with and understand. All God's love, all God's mercy, all God's kindness, all God's benevolence, all God's compassion, all God's hospitableness, all God's warmth, all in one person. Goodness emanating from every pore of his humanity. Goodness coming out of every word he ever speaks. Goodness flowing out of every step he ever takes. Just goodness, goodness, goodness. This is how Jesus is described in John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness we have all received. And grace for grace. Goodness for goodness. Grace for grace. Goodness for goodness. Mercy for mercy. Kindness for kindness. Benevolence for benevolence. More and more and more and more. And on into eternity. Because Christ faced off Satan. Goodness faced off malice. And who won? Who won? You know who won. You know the great hero story. You know the story that smashes all the Hollywood movies ever written and all the novels ever composed. It is the greatest story ever told. The story of the man who is God, who came into this world and lived a good life, who could say to all his enemies, which of you convicts me of sin? Who died a good death. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He was raised unto a good resurrection because God raised him from the dead. He ascended in a good ascension, holy, undefiled, separate from sin, as higher than the heavens, Hebrews 7. He reigns a good reign. God has highly exalted him. He will, he will have a good return. He will destroy the lawless one with the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming, 2 Thessalonians 2. And it will lead into a good eternity, for he shall reign forever and ever. Behold the goodness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The goodness of God cannot be defeated by sin. And you know, the goodness of God will not be defeated by your sin. I wonder if you know why you're here this morning. You might think you're here because, well, I come every Sunday. 
Or you might think you're here because I got invited. Or you might think you're here, well, COVID season is nearly over and I've come back. Those are all what we call contingency causes. They're secondary causes. Do you know the real reason you're here? It's because God is good. And God is displaying before you right now his goodness to you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That goodness has come to you. It's come to you by name. It's come to you personally. I'm a messenger of God. God is speaking to you. God in his goodness is inviting you. God in his goodness says to you, I know you're like the people of Psalm 107. You're full of trouble, full of problems, full of distresses, full of bereavements, full of trials, full of afflictions. You've been a part of the cosmic rebellion against me. Of course, all of these things are going to happen. Sorry. Sin has consequences. But I've overcome them all. It doesn't matter if you're seven or eight or nine or 17 or 18 or 19 or 77 or 87 or 97 or even more. God's goodness is so mighty that it will conquer your sin. We're given that wonderful picture of Jesus in Matthew 11. And he's standing before the people. And he says to them, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is your God. In his goodness, he has invited you here today. He has drawn you here today. And his goodness is so mighty that even the remaining sinful rebellion within you that is holding you back from coming to him now, he is mighty to destroy. And you know, if, if there's a sinner here this morning that Christ is drawing to God in his goodness, you cannot not come. You will come. And when you come and you receive from God this benevolence, this kindness, this goodness, and we're going to have to come back and think more about it next time. We've run out of time this morning. But when you come and you receive that from God, do you know what your heart will say? You will say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy and yours forever. Why? It has even conquered my sinful heart. To God be all the praise. Amen. Apologies to the children.